from the EPR Creation Studio. It's the Unconquered Podcast. We're going to be looking at the Jacksonville State game, doing a little preview of that. But we're not going to spend a ton of time on that, previewing an FCS team that legitimately could beat Florida State. We're not going to spend as much time on that in this episode as on a Q&A looking at sort of the state of the program and uh, a few other questions dealing with that stuff. So that's going to be the episode As always, this show is brought to you by EPR Creations. EPR Creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. If you have any need for an improved internet presence or just want to improve your marketing, call EPR Creations or send them an email. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. You'll be glad you did. Information's in the show notes. Well, Florida State is where they've been a few different times in terms of playing an FCS team that actually has a legitimate chance of beating them. Jacksonville State actually very nearly beat Florida State in 2009, bringing in a former LSU quarterback, Ryan Paraloo. And they gave Florida State everything they could handle in 2009. If you remember, Jacoby McDaniel forced a fumble that uh, ultimately led to the final margin. Florida State won 19-9 that year. And uh, and again, that was, that was a game where Florida State really probably should have lost that game. And then a couple others that really were a lot closer than, than they should have been. But uh, this one is another game where they're playing against one of the best teams in the FCS. And in a normal year, this Jacksonville State team would be would probably be pretty likely to go deep in the F- FCS playoffs. They've got a chance this, this year with this team to be the best team they've had since 2015 when they went to the FCS National Championship game. This is a team that averaged 40 points a game in 2018. Same quarterback, uh, Zarek Cooper. Now, he, quarterback is really the key here for them. And and Cooper, is a he's a Clemson transfer. And I actually got to see him in person at a Clemson practice a couple of years ago. Uh, got to watch him and, and the other quarterbacks there. And he can really spin it. Uh, he's got good mobility. He's a guy that I actually thought then was a, a better was a better prospect in their practice. He was a better prospect than Kelly Bryant, who actually went on to start that year. And, uh, and, and it was just a matter of Cooper being a little younger. He didn't have full uh, grasp of the system and everything, but he threw it better than Bryant. He was a good athlete, really a guy that had Clemson not managed to land Trevor Lawrence, might be the starter at Clemson right now, just in terms of talent, in terms of, of what he brings to the table physically. Uh, also, pretty sharp guy. He, he would probably be the, the, the starter there, but once the Elf actually arrived in Clemson, all the other quarterbacks on the roster were just like, yeah, probably not beating this guy out. And they they got got out of Dodge. Cooper, among them, uh, transferring to Jacksonville State. And quite frankly, Cooper is a better player, a better quarterback than Florida State has on its roster, uh, roster at this point. He's a better quarterback than Sims from, from Georgia Tech. He's, a, he's in the same class as De'Eric King in terms of, of signal callers. Uh, he's he's that level of player, and that's not good news for a Florida State defense that has a way of making and has a tradition. It's a it's a Florida State tradition of late to make quarterbacks look like Heisman contenders. Even average quarterbacks look really good against Florida State's defense in in recent years, and they're playing against a good one here. Now that offense did turn it over quite a bit in 2019. They they were really expected to have a uh, an outstanding year. They were they were thought in the preseason, they were ranked in the FCS top 10 in 2019 based on scoring 40 points a game and and some of the other stuff that they'd done in 2018. And then they really struggled in 2019, mostly because turnovers. 
so the, the the real question here is, is Cooper and is that offense, are they going to be able to uh, avoid the injury or the, the turnover bug that bit them so much in, in 2019? I would not expect that turnover turnover trend to continue in 2020, though Florida State has a chance, given some talent edges and, and other things on the on the defense to to have a chance to uh, to turn to cause some turnovers to cause some problems for a team that shouldn't be able to protect Cooper as well against against Florida State's defensive line shouldn't be able to get open as easily against those that secondary. But then again, what do we know? This Florida State defense just simply has not shown play in that has matched the level of alleged talent that they have. And if Cooper gets time to throw, he's, he's going to, he's going to give Florida state some serious problems. I mean, that's, that's just, that's the way it is. And they do have an, an NFL, a legit NFL prospect at tight end and Trey Barry. They've got some other quality transfers from other programs. Uh, this is a team that, that they'll be able to score some points on Florida State's defense, unless Florida State's defense suddenly changes tack and 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 plays at a level that they haven't this year. This is a team that's going to be able to score, and yeah, that's that's not good news considering Florida State's offense has not been able to do any much of anything against anyone, and that's even against a you know a Georgia Tech team that's not very good, and against a Miami team that's good but not great, and. They've got some quality quality players on the defense as well. They're the defensive end, DJ Coleman, probably going to give Florida State's tackles some trouble. He had 28 quarterback hurries in 2019. Uh, definitely some definitely some uh, some players that can play at a level that can give Florida State some trouble. So Florida State could absolutely lose this game. There's no question. If they don't, if they play at the level that they've played at different points in, against Georgia Tech and against Miami. They will lose this game. Now, because they're going to be able to score some points with with Cooper at quarterback and all of that, not to state the obvious, but this game really hinges on Florida State's offense scoring points. And that's after 13 and 10 points in the first two games. And, you know, Florida State's going to have to find a way to to manufacture some points. And, And that starts really in this game in particular with being able to run the ball. And... I know some of you are going to have maybe even a, even a violent reaction to what I'm about to say. So if you are, if you're, if you're standing, maybe you should sit down. If you are driving, maybe, maybe pause this for a moment before you, uh, and, and get to a traffic light before you play this next section. But th- the truth is that so far in 2020, the offensive line and running backs have been the best position groups for Florida state so far on offense. Yeah, I said it. And I'm going to say it again. In fact, you can make a, a strong case that the offensive line as a whole has been Florida State's overall best position group, period, on offense. Yeah, it's really true. Think about it. Go back and watch some of this stuff. Well, actually, I, I don't know that I suggest watching the debacles that we've seen the first couple of weeks. But if you have the stomach for it, go back and take a look and, and try to take off the blinders of that Florida State fans have tended to have with respect to this for for some years of, well, clearly our problems are the offensive line. Uh, Obviously, it's just everything's the offensive line's fault. And this goes all the way back to the Jimbo era where everybody always wanted to blame Rick Trickett. And the offensive line's terrible. The offensive line's terrible. And you see this at every program, it seems. You see this with NFL teams. I mean, you you see 
Kansas City Chief fans talking about their offensive line being bad. At every level, it seems like the offensive line is always terrible for, for every team, even when the offensive line is one of the best in the game. And here's the thing. Florida State's offensive line so far has been above average. What other position group has been? The top three graded players on the team, according to Pro Football Focus, and yes, I know that's not the end-all, be-all, but this is accurate. This, I, I went and I, want, I wanted to check because I was going to make this statement, and I wanted to check those grades against my own eyes. Like, look, if I was going to, I'm going to make this statement, I want to have some backing for this. And I went through and I went, oh, yeah, no, actually, PFF agrees here. If you look at the offensive players on Pro Football Focus, the top three graded players on Pro Football Focus are Lawrence Toafili on only 30 plays. So he's only put, been in the game on 30 plays, and he's graded out at a 77.5. That's pretty good. But it's only on 30 plays. The next two, Devontae, Taylor, or Devontae Love Taylor at 73.3, and Maurice Smith at 72.7. So t- the top two players who've been actually in starter rotation for Florida State are on the offensive line. Two-fifths of your offensive line is actually grading out above everybody else. The next guy, not surprisingly, Cameron McDonald. So depending on where you, how you count the tight end, the tight end sometimes is in line with the, with the offensive line and all that. But when you're putting the, when you're putting the H back tight end in the, uh, in the box, you've got three of your best players are the guys that are blocking. <sighs> yeah. And McDonald's uh, run blocking and pass blocking grades actually are, are pretty good. Run blocking is okay. Pass blocking has been excellent when, he, when they've kept him in. And then you start going down the list and you realize, wait a second, Darius Washington's grade is within a point of Tamorian Terry's. Chaz Neal on four plays has graded out higher than Tamorian Terry despite giving up that one sack. So here's the thing. And actually, Dante Lucas has, has played pretty poorly, 52.9. He's, he's actually on the bottom half of, of, of things. As is as is Baby on Johnson, the two guards have surprisingly been the, the the real weakness of this offensive line. But all in all, the offensive line has graded out higher than the other position groups. Wide receivers have been awful. Quarterback has been terrible. If you average out the grades by position group, James Blackman's at a fifty-seven point five. The lo- the lowest offensive lineman of the starting group is Bavion Johnson, and he, by the way, is lower than some of the backups, is 52.2, uh, 52.0, and that's balanced out by the, set, by the grades in the 70s. The best group for Florida State so far on offense, and, and if I told you that before the season, Florida State's best offensive group is going to be the offensive line, you'd know that it was either a really good sign or a really bad sign. And it's been, it's been a bad sign, guys. But it's actually true. You've got Darius Washington has graded out at the same level as Tamorian Terry. And Devontae Taylor and Maurice Smith are the two best players who've played most of the snaps for Florida State. So that means that Florida State's offense really has to start with running the football and using that offensive line. The strength of the offense. 
I mean, look, when you go back and you watch, if, if you have the stomach to go back and watch, take a look at how much time Blackman actually has to throw when he drops back. Yeah, there's always going to be plays where team blitzes or gets some pressure. You're going to have those breakdowns period. It happens even against the best offensive lines. But look at the average. Look at the average. He's getting three, three plus seconds to throw. That's more than you expect. They've been they've been actually well above average in pass protection. I mean, generally speaking, you want the ball out at about two and a half seconds. He's been getting over three seconds. I mean, I'm sitting and I did this on 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 Patreon after the Georgia Tech game where I I pointed out, let's look at the clock when he gets the ball. Ball snapped. Four seconds later, he's still holding on to it, and he hasn't made a decision. Five seconds now, he's getting pressure. Well, that's not the offensive line's fault. So. Main thing here, you are playing against a good FCS defensive line, but it's still an FCS defensive line. Use your strength, run the football. The, by the way, the next guys on the list, Jashawn Corbin and, and LaDamian Webb, those guys are seven and eight in terms of, uh, of overall grades on the, on the team. And among guys who actually are, are starting minutes, starting reps, those guys are number four and or number, number uh, five and number four and five on the team. So again, running backs and, and, and offensive line have been the strength of the, of the offense so far. So you got to basically start there in order for this offense to have some success against Jacksonville state. And beyond that, if you can, if they're, if they're ready at all, you got to start giving the young, young quarterbacks some, some time. And actually it appears likely that Purdy might be, actually cleared to play in this game. But in my opinion, as soon as the young quarterbacks are ready to to play within specific packages and to actually get out there and, and not be ruined, you start start rolling them out there and giving them some reps. There's just, honestly, there's very little left to be gained by playing Blackman a bunch. Now, the problem is you never play a young guy who isn't actually ready. That it is so far, so much easier to ruin a quarterback than to develop a than to develop a guy. It's easier to ruin a young guy than to to develop one. And we'll talk more about that later in the episode. But it's easier to ruin a guy. So you do not ever want to play a guy who's just totally not ready. A guy who's going to basically get shell shocked from from the from the uh, circumstance. You don't want to do that. But as soon as the guy shows that, yeah, you know what, he can run, he can run your base stuff. He can make decisions. He can get the ball out quickly. As soon as you do that, as soon as you've got a guy that's ready to do that, you get him out there because there's just very little left to be gained by playing Blackman really for the remainder of the season. What do you get out of it? He's not going to be the guy next year. He's just not. And you're probably not winning a bunch with, with the way that he's playing right now. So you got to start, start thinking about what, what you can do to best develop whatever plan you have to best develop the young guys, to give, to ease them into reps and to put them in positions where they can start to have some success with live bullets. That's what you got to do. And I know most coaches and I know Norvell is not a guy that likes to split time with quarterbacks and, to you know, play multiple quarterbacks. If there ever is a season to do it, this is the year because you got to start, you got to find ways, first of all, to find, to create some offense this year. And secondly, you've got to start developing those guys to compete for the job next year. I mean, 2020 is not, you're not competing for anything in 2020. You've got to start getting guys ready to actually have a chance in 2021. So 
you got to do that. And Purdy is is the guy that gives you really the most, obviously, because of his running ability. He's a guy that's about as explosive, about as quick and 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 fast as Jordan Travis, but also able to run the also able to throw the football. So you know that's that's your best case scenario is that you're able to do a lot of the things that you're able to do with uh, with with Jordan Travis against Miami. But with a guy that actually threatens to throw the football down the field, and that can that could change the offense with it, with a quickness if that guy's actually ready to go. But you ha- you can't play him until he is, and that's the hard part. So, this is going to be FSU's best chance to get a win on the 2020 schedule. But there's no guarantee here. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bet on Florida State to win. I I do not think that this is going to be a runaway. I don't think that I I certainly wouldn't want to bet on on Florida State to cover this game. I'm going to go with Florida State 34, Jacksonville 24, with a 75% chance of a Florida State win or an 80% chance of a Florida State win. But that means it's a it's a legit losable game. And this is the best chance to get a win on the 2020 schedule. It's But that's where things are at, at Florida State. Now, if they're able to get some some young guys in there to to play at the quarterback position, even close to what, what you should get in Norvell's offense, then all of a sudden you'll see a, a pretty significant transition. I want to pause for a moment and thank Luis Marquez from Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. Over 90% of home buyers search online first these days, so it's critical to make sure your listing stands out with great pictures and video. Lewis is a trained photographer and videographer. Other realtors have hired him to come photograph their listings, and nobody will make your home look better for prospective home buyers, including smooth, professional walkthrough video. And if you're in the market to buy a home in the greater Jacksonville area, no one will outwork Lewis. He was a manager at the Pickup Publix on Ocala and Tallahassee, so you know he works hard and understands customer service. He'll help you find the right house and make sure every step goes smoothly through closing. Information in the show notes. Let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered Podcast. All right, we're going to go ahead and do some question and answer. A lot of questions came in after the Miami game, as you would expect. So I'm going to go ahead and try to get to these. Wanted to get them done earlier in the, in the week, but... Oh, man, it has been... It has been a wild week. I'll just tell you that. So anyway, let's go ahead and and get to these. First question. Did this Jacksonville State game come at almost the perfect time given the Miami game? Quite frankly, I would have if I were Mike, if I were Mike Norvell, I would have rather had this Jacksonville State game right before the Miami game. So this is not the perfect time, but it's as good a time as you're going to get after the Miami game. Uh, I would have rather had it before the Miami game so that I could have one more week to to potentially get Purdy healthy. I could get some time to play some of the younger guys, maybe give Blackman a little bit of time to uh, to see if he can actually find some comfort level and and be be able to execute my offense. There's ideally it would have been before the Miami game, but you take what you can get. Next question. What would Norvell have been able to see watching at home like a fan rather than being there coaching in the moment? Honestly, not much. Uh, he would have seen less than coaching in the moment. That's for sure. You just can't see enough with the broadcast angles to make good judgments and, and assessments, certainly on first watch most of the time. I mean, you just can't see enough. Uh, show the safeties. And frankly, in order, to, in order to see the things that he needs to see to be able to, to, to tell anything, uh, you, he's going to have to wait until the coach's film hits Exos, the Exos system, about an hour after the game to start making judgments. As soon as he's able to get access that on his iPad, uh, or his his computer where, where wherever he's watching it at that point he can begin to evaluate more more things but he's there's just fans watching at home don't really see anything that coaches can't or coaches don't it's a disadvantaged position you see less 
And it's not it, you don't get an advantage by by watching a game as, as a fan. It's just there's it's just not the fact because you just can't see enough. Uh, so so, yeah, there's just not much benefit there. OK, next question. Wanted your opinion and or thoughts on the current and future state of the program. Could Florida State turn into Nebraska and slip into over a decade or more of losing football? After all, five-star recruits stopped walking around on campus three-plus years ago. They've got they, Actually, they've got quite a few five-star recruits still on campus right now. They just aren't playing like it. Will Norvell be able to prove how good a coach he is by loading the roster year after year with three stars? Can you win at this level like that? With future sh- schedules that include the LSUs and Alabamas of the world, how does Norvell break through having one great year with limited talent to work with? This is the first time I can ever remember when the tailback position has lacked a home run threat. So there's a lot here. So first of all, I, as I mentioned, as I was reading this, there are actually quite a few five-star recruits on campus right now. I mean, Marvin Wilson is one. Uh, Akeem Dent is one. You, you've got a series of five-star recruits on this on this team. They just aren't playing like five-star recruits. The, the development of five-star recruits has been awful. So that's 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 first and foremost. Uh. But I'm gonna, I want to take this back to the first question, and that is, could Florida State turn into Nebraska and slip into over a decade or more of losing football? Could they? Yes. Are they likely to? No. There are a couple factors that, that, that changed the Nebraska situation pretty dramatically. For First of all, you got to remember that Nebraska became Nebraska by a sort of moneyball approach, maximizing the, uh, the impact of, first of all, running their own distinctive program of power football of what looked like triple option, but it wasn't really triple, you know, Osborne, Tommy Osborne football that became its own sort of brand and pulled from a lot of the, 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 the talent, the kind of talent that, that programs in the, uh, in the region were able to supply linemen on both sides of the ball. Uh, then you go dip into Texas because they played in Texas three times a year, at least being in the big 12, uh, big eight before that, they, they basically were able to leverage their, where they were regionally to recruit in talent, rich Texas. They actually even dipped into California. Sometimes they dip into, into, uh, into Florida a little bit, but it all started with that, with the Texas recruiting base. That's what Nebraska used. They were, they were recruiting the same talent as Oklahoma, Texas, Texas A&M, and because of their brand and because of their success, they were able to they were able to get a lot of those guys. And then that all changed. First of all, when they went to a different brand of football, which then you have to understand your program DNA. You know, if you're if you're at Florida State, you don't recruit corners, defensive backs to play off zone coverage most of the time. You're recruiting guys to play aggressive, in-your-face, press press coverage, these sorts of things. That's that's Florida State's program DNA on defense. And you gotta you gotta understand what the program DNA is, and you gotta recruit to that, first of all. And so Nebraska made some mistakes there. And then secondly, when Nebraska went to the to the Big Ten, that was the end of that program, being a, a national nationally competitive program. I said it then and I still say it. Because it cut the lifeblood of their recruiting. It was it was a a positive move for them in terms of money coming into the university and the and, and the athletic de- department due to better media rights and all that. But in terms of who they can recruit, 
what dis- what distinguishes Nebraska from Iowa or Wisconsin? I mean, why why would they be any different from those programs? In the Big 12, they're dipping into Texas. In the Big 10, the Texas pipeline is cut off. They're the teams that they're playing are those Midwestern, those talent poor Midwestern states that just don't have players. So I don't think that Florida State is likely to become Nebraska unless they change conferences. And even there, they're, st- they're still probably not likely to do that because you're, you're, you're in Florida. You're, you're in that area where talent-rich South Georgia, South Alabama, and Florida, are th- that's, your, that's your backyard. So, no, I don't think that that's likely. Could they, however, slip into, in, in terms of long-term, could they slip into a decade of, of bad football, though? With the wrong moves and, you know, continue changing coaches and a number of other things? Yeah, they could, but the, the upside long-term in terms of the program is still there because geography is still destiny in college football to a large degree. If you have a, a good brand and good geography, that's, that's a winning formula. Now, the, this then leads into the next question of, can this staff do it? Can this coaching staff, can Mike Norvell actually get this turned around? Do you believe that this got this group can do it? My answer there is is pretty simple. It depends on whether and how quickly they can get a quarterback that can play at an FSU level. Real simple. And I'll build build that into the next question that came in. And that is how long is this rebuild going to take? How long is it going to take for Mike Norvell or the next guy to actually get Florida State competitive again? And f- this this is related to the first question, but I'll just answer that with, a, with another question that, that hopefully will make some sense of this in the way that I'm thinking about it. What would your answer have been if I'd asked you the same question about Miami after last year? Remember, this is the same Miami team that got shut out by Louisiana Tech in the bowl game. Last year, 2019. So what would you have said if I'd asked you how long before Miami is actually Miami? I mean, like before they actually start looking good. How long before they're competitive? What would you have said? Three, four years, maybe? Look at how much things have changed down, down in Miami just since the arrival of Derek King. It's, it's a radical ch- change. I mean, look at what they did offensively against Florida State. They could have scored more than 52 versus last year where they struggled against an equally bad defense. They won that game still. But it wasn't because they were great on great on offense, because Florida State was terrible. But you add a, a quality quarterback, all, and all of a sudden everything everything looks completely different. Look how quickly just the addition of De'Aaron King has changed things for Miami. Another good example: look at look at North Carolina. Look at what happened after Mitch Trubisky left and went to the NFL, and how that program cratered. I mean, they were. You remember they they were uh, they they lost they actually were an onside kick recovery away from giving from potentially beating that that Clemson team that went to the college football playoff the year before two years before right so with Marquise Williams at quarterback they gave Clemson all they could handle in the in the uh, ACC championship game and they're in the ACC championship game. The next year with Trubisky, again, competitive for the for the conference, for that side of the conference. Quality football team. Trubisky leaves, quarterback play tanks, and the coach gets fired. 
They won five games in, in two years. Terrible. Sam Howell arrives, and all of a sudden, they're competing with Miami for the best team in the Coastal. And even their defense looks better. Now, they do have a really good coordinator at de- on, de- on the defensive side. But it's, it's real simple. If you want to compete in college football, you've got to have a quarterback. They were terrible after Trubisky. All of a sudden, Howell gets there as a true freshman, and they're respectable. And they're pretty good this year. It's as simple as a quarterback play. Let's look at Florida State. Jameis Winston, you go to the national championship game, win it, go to college football playoff. Winston leaves, Coker has transferred. All of a sudden, you're Everett Golson, Sean McGuire, freshman DeAndre Francois. That year, they actually go to the Orange Bowl, win the Orange Bowl. And then Blackman, shell of himself post-injury Francois. And then Blackman and Hornibrook, and now Blackman. Do you want to know why Florida State's been terrible? Right there. Everett Golson, Sean McGuire, DeAndre Francois, Blackman, Hornibrook. What more is there to say? That's not good enough. That's not Florida State-level quarterback play. And that will get a coach fired. Just like it did at North Carolina. Just like it did at Miami, when Miami didn't have quarterback play. It'll get a coach fired, and especially if that coach doesn't sign a high school quarterback in in his first two recruiting classes to try to fix that problem. You've got a problem at that position, you'd better throw numbers at it. You better find guys that can actually come in and solve that problem. And if you want to know why Willie Taggart got fired, it's right there. Quarterback play was terrible, and he didn't solve it. There, yes, there were tons of other problems. That was, but, but really, if you want to, if you want to nail it down to one factor, if you don't have a quarterback, you can't win. And if you can't recruit quarterbacks to fix it, well, you shouldn't be there. Simple. And the truth is, good quarterback play makes an, a bad offensive line look decent, and it makes a decent offensive line look good. Bad quarterback play makes great offensive line play look bad. And yes, there is some synergism here in the other direction as well. I mean, good offensive line play helps a quarterback look better. But good offensive line play doesn't rescue bad offensive or bad quarterback play. If you're if you have a poor if you have poor quarterback play and good offensive line play, you're still not going to be very good on offense. It's like having a governor on your on your uh, accelerator. You can you can that, that 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 just means if you have a good offensive line and bad quarterback play, that just means that you can floor it and get to 40 miles an hour and you're okay, but you can't go faster than that because the quarterback's going to keep holding you back. Fact is, you have to have a quarterback who can make good decisions and distribute the ball at a minimum. If you don't have that, it doesn't matter how good your offensive line is. That's the truth. And look at this Miami game. I went back and and I'm, I'm going to post this to uh, Patreon today. And I, w- I looked at the six sacks. The quarterback was to blame or shared the blame on four of the six sacks. The offensive line was either to blame or shared the blame on three of those sacks. The running back was to blame or shared the blame on two of those sacks. So there's shared blame a little bit. And then there was one blown protection call. But it was mostly the quarterback, guys. And you're going to expect to give up a sack or two in a given game. That's okay. You can, you can survive that. What you can't survive is when your quarterback's adding four more sacks to the mix. And then making 
questionable decisions even when he's not sacked or when he doesn't have pressure and not executing. You, you can't survive that. So how long of a rebuild is this? It's going to take until Florida State has a quarterback who can play at the Florida State level. That's as simple as I can put it. Now, if you're Mike Norvell, you really hope that guy is Purdy or Rotomaker, guys that are already on your roster, guys that you brought in to, to fix that problem. And that's when, when this staff took over, they, they assessed the, the roster, they assessed where things were, and they said, oh, wow, there's no quarterbacks here. Florida State has no quarterbacks. We'd better get more than one that can play, that can help us as quickly as possible because we got to turn that room over now. And they were right about that. But the moment that they find a quarterback who can play at, a, at an FSU level, they'll be competitive with anyone in the conference except for Clemson. The moment that they have, if you get a guy that plays to 75 or 80% of what Sam Howell has given North Carolina, Florida State's the second best team in the conference. It just changes everything. Guys play differently when they know they've got a quarterback. Defense plays at a different level when you've got a quarterback. It's true. It just is. Now, to get competitive, to get back to the Clemson level, you're probably looking at a three to four rebuild. Three to four year rebuild based on the current roster talent levels. You're just not catching them anytime soon because they're way ahead. But you wouldn't have thought that Clemson would catch Florida State in 2014, would you? But again, Clemson has recruited the heck out of the most important position in team sports. Deshaun Watson, followed by Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, you know what? You're going to be pretty good. And you can have deficiencies at other positions when you have those guys. Florida State looked like they were miles ahead, years ahead of Clemson in 2014. And all of a sudden, a couple of years of Everett Golson and Sean McGuire and Clemson's got Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence on the way. And that flipped with a quickness. It just takes taking care of the most important position in team sports. Now, again, you still have to catch up in other areas. And they're going to need to do well in the transfer portal to have some other positions taken care of in 2021. But this gets to, by the way, the, the, another question. How did the gap between Miami and Florida State get so big? It, I just never imagined that the gap was so, was, so, was so big between Florida State and Miami. Well, again, it's real simple, folks. The gap isn't that big, except at the most important position in team sports. The 42-point gap between Florida State and Miami boils down to the gap between De'Eric King and the Florida State quarterback position in that game. King played 42 points better than what Florida State got at the, at the quarterback position. Simple. And yes, yes, Florida State's defense played terrible. But I'm telling you, when you have confidence on that side of the ball in your quarterback, the defense plays differently. It just, it, I, it's hard to explain, but they do. King transformed that program just on arrival. Florida State hasn't had that. They're going to need to get it. That's, that's the answer. Take a quick break, pay the bills, be right back. 
want to pause for a moment to thank Shenandoah Newsma from Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Shannon has a PhD from UNC and knows how to put that research training to work. And she also takes great pride in not taking a one-size-fits-all approach to real estate. She specializes in customizing strategic options for each client and providing expert guidance through how to think about each option. It's a lot more work, but in the end, Shannon's clients end up way better off. My wife and I worked with Shannon a couple years ago and could not recommend her more highly. If you or anyone you know is looking for a realtor in the research triangle, there's no one better. Her information's in the show notes. Tell her you heard about her from the Unconquered podcast. Okay, next question. So is it time for Florida State to go full-on youth movement? To play Robert Scott at tackle, Thomas Schrader uh, at the other tackle maybe, or you know the guard, one of the guards, get the young quarterbacks in there? What what should what should they do? And I've gotten a bunch of these questions. You know, shouldn't why why not try the young quarterbacks again? A bunch of these things have come in. Here's the problem. I, I've got a I've got a friend who's a sociologist, and he he does some sociology of sports stuff. And we've got a couple projects in the works. One of the projects that we want to do is we want to look at uh, what happens what 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 the career trajectory is of young offensive linemen who play early in FBS football. Cause we got a theory here and it's just based on mostly anecdotal observation to this point, but, but just think back through Florida state football the last few years and you, you'll see what I'm talking about. The theory is this young offensive linemen who play a bunch early get hurt and then they don't develop and they have worse careers as in general. And Florida state has been stuck in this cycle for years so what happens is you don't, you're not real good on the offensive line. So you go out and you recruit some high school offensive linemen who can play, but those guys, guys, there's a, the, the difference between high school and college on the line of scrimmage is night and day. I mean, you just can't, my goodness, it is just not, it's not comparable. The, the strength level you're you're going from, from playing against boys to playing against grown men. When you're blocking a 17-year-old, it's a totally different ball game from when you're blocking a 22 or 23-year-old redshirt junior, redshirt senior, who, or you know, a 21-year-old NFL prospect. You know, most of these guys, when they're when they're come, when they're playing in high school, they're the best player on their field, and then they're blocking. You know, you've got a 290, 300-pound guy who's blocking 215, 220-pound defensive lineman on the other side. And then all of a sudden you're going to put them in, the, in a college game and they're playing against guys that are 270 and are built like a Josh Kando, right? It's just not the same. No matter how good you are in high school, you're just not used to that. And you're not used to the, the, the level of just physicality that happens at the college level. And there's just very few guys that come out of high school that are really ready to play right away. And the problem is that when you're not good, and you've got a guy that actually brings in more potential coming out of high school, the temptation is, well, we can, we, we're going to have to play this guy. We're going to have to solve this problem by playing this guy early. And then what happens? The young guy whose body is not used to that kind of, of contact, that kind of intensity, that kind of strength gets hurt. And then when you get hurt, guess what? You're rehabbing in the off season. You're not getting better. You're not getting stronger. And then you don't develop that year. And because you're not a whole lot stronger and you haven't made the progress that you need to make between the freshman and sophomore years, when you go out there and you're playing again because, well, now you're a returning starter, 
or returning a guy with returning experience. And now you, you need to be that guy. You go out there and you get dinged up again. <laughs> and then you don't make the improvement between sophomore and junior year. And all of a sudden you've got juniors who just, who, who aren't a whole lot better than they were as freshmen. That's what you've got to avoid if you're Mike Norvell in, in this in this coaching staff. You're trying with everything you've got to avoid to get out of that cycle that Florida State's been in, been in on the offensive line, where you get young guys who have some potential, who have some talent, who are forced into action because the the line just doesn't have some of the older guys haven't panned out. Partly because early on they had to play early, and then they get hurt, and then that forces the young guys back in there and then the young guys get hurt and then you you're you're in that cycle and you can get trapped in that cycle for years and this is why your best offensive line programs your places like Iowa not, year in year out they're playing redshirt redshirt juniors redshirt seniors on their offensive line and they guess what new guy goes in there you know he's a three star and he's he sits out as, as he redshirts as a freshman spends most of that year focusing on getting stronger and developing really gets better in the offseason develops gets stronger plays a little bit as a redshirt freshman but not a, not too much then gets a lot stronger gets better develops some between redshirt freshman and sophomore year and then by the time he's out there as a redshirt sophomore redshirt junior that guy is ready to play at the college level. That's what you've got to do on the on the line of scrimmage. So, yeah, you know what? Robert Scott was one of the bright spots against Miami. I, I was I was impressed by his potential. Schrader looked, you know, decent too. But what you don't want to do is take those guys and, and throw them into the starting lineup and then have them take eight, ten games of of the 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 contact of getting beat up at this level and probably get hurt. Now you can play them in spots. They can they can take reps. I'm not saying you'd never play a young guy. It's okay to give him reps, but you just can't give them starter starter reps. You can't it's it's the the overall load that these younger bodies just can't handle. And that's really what you've got to avoid. The the primary thing that you want to make sure you come out of this season with is that your young guys, and by the way, Dante Lucas last year thrust into action because he was the best guy they had at the, at the offensive guard position, gets hurt, spends a good portion of the offseason rehabbing, doesn't get any better. He's no better right now than he was in his in game two as a, as a, as a, tr a true freshman. Oh, and he also got dinged up in game in game one of, of year two. So before long, Dante Lucas is a junior or senior who's no better, hasn't developed from being a freshman. You got to stop that trend. Even if that means you, you're not as good offensively this year as you might be otherwise. So sophomore Robert Scott, Thomas Schrader, who haven't gotten hurt as freshmen, those guys might be able to play. and might not be in danger. You get out of that cycle, and all of a sudden, then the next group that comes in, they can redshirt, or they can, they can play less, they can rotate a little bit and not be dependent on. And I'm telling you that if any of you out there have a kid who's a an off or you know a relative who's an offensive line prospect at the FBS level here's what i would counsel you to do tell that kid to make the decision to go somewhere where he doesn't he's not expected to play right away it's the best thing for him go where he can he, he's going to have time to develop and not get hurt in year 1 not get hurt in year 2 and really have a chance to develop and become a player by year 3 or 4 that's what you have to do if you're a young guy the other thing and, and the same thing is true by the way at quarterback Quarterbacks who play early. I, I talked to Jimbo a lot about this when, when he was at Florida State. He used to talk about this. Quarterbacks who play early, often as often as not, get ruined. 
because you're just not used to this pace of the game. You get you get into bad habits. You you don't see the game all that well because you're you're getting shell shocked early on. And quarterbacks who play early and get shell shocked don't develop. They get ruined. See Blackman James. Just it's what happens. So for me, wait on the young offensive linemen. Give them some reps, definitely. But don't don't put them in the starting lineup if you can abs- if you can help it. Don't put them in the starting lineup. Be be absolutely certain that you're doing the best that you can to minimize the chance of those guys getting hurt in year one, because then you restart that cycle again. But on the on the flip side, the moment the young quarterbacks show that they're ready and that they're starting to see things quickly enough to actually not be shell shocked once you put them in there, get them in the game, play them. Start getting those guys out there and getting them some experience. Now, you might have to do it in spots with packages and things like that. That you can do. But you want to do it under control. Play them once they're ready. And then as far as the young talent, young skill guys and all that, play the young skill guys as soon as, as, soon as you can. Get those guys in the game. Young, young receivers, young running backs, that sort of thing. Play those guys. Running backs maybe less, a little less. So Toa Feely looks a little frail for my, my blood. But, but, you know, start getting young skill guys in the game. It's a little different there. All right, couple thing, couple final ones. These are quick ones. There's a rumor Terry took Florida State out of his Instagram bio and deleted uh, photos of himself playing for the Knowles. Any of your sources said anything about this? Well, yes, it's true that he did that. And yes, there's been some behind-the-scenes stuff there. But he's still on the team as of right now. So, um, and I don't really expect that to change. But uh, but yeah, there's been some, been some discussions. Just call it that. Uh, next one. What's the proper way for the back seven to defend the split stacked wide receiver screen? I feel like we've struggled with defending this the past three years. Now, there's several ways of doing this, depending on what your coverage is, depending on the, how you're constructing your defense. But the main thing is that you have to bracket things leverage wise. So you have to have one of the one of the players that that is going to take the outside contain so that you can't just have uh, the, the ball carrier turn to the sideline and go up the sideline. And then you have the other player who has to be the alley defender and basically come to the inside of that and play inside out and make the tackle. Uh, and the guy who's going to be the contained defender has to do it taking on the block and basically uh, doing it with some physicality so that the guy can't just run forward as uh, either. So you have to take on that block, manage the uh, manage to contain, and then force it into your alley player. Uh, Florida State has had some issues, partly because they've not been real physical on the edge, and then partly just they've not done a real good job of playing team defense where you got guys trying to make the tackle instead of doing their job. So pretty simple. Final question. If you could add any past Florida State player to this roster, who would it be? For me, it's an easy que- easy answer. It's going to be either Charlie Ward or Jameis Winston. Give me either one of those, and I feel like I've got a pretty good football team all of a sudden. Quarterback changes everything. I've seen some people say Walter Jones and all of that. For me... You could add Walter Jones to this offensive line and you'd still have an anemic offense. You'd have a very good offensive line, at least one great offensive lineman. You'd have a good offensive line, but you'd still struggle to score 25, 30 points because it's the quarterback play that's been the biggest problem. The offensive line, like I said, been the best position for Florida State so far in 2020. That's going to have to change if Florida State's going to have any success the rest of the year. They're going to have to get some support from other positions because the offensive line's not great. And when when this offensive line has been your best, best group, got problems. 
We'll go ahead and wrap there. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach and Broward County, and The Unconquered Podcast Shop, which features stickers, magnets, and other Seminole gear. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. Special thanks to those above the bleach numbers level. That is Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, Travis Smith, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. I made this. <laughs>